Thank you. Welcome to this informal meeting for members of 12 Step Fellowships who are interested in recovery through the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Alastair and I'm an alcoholic. To set the tone for this meeting, I'll read an extract from the preface of the big book. Because this book has become the basic text for our society and has helped such large numbers of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists strong sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, the first portion of this volume describing the AA recovery program has been left largely untouched in the course of revisions made for the second, third and fourth editions. The section called the doctor's opinion has been kept intact just as it was originally written in 1939 by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, our society's great medical benefactor. At tonight's workshop, we pick up from where we finished last week, which is in chapter four, we agnostics halfway down page 53 uh, with the paragraph starting arrived at this point, we were squarely confronted with this question of faith. And Tim will work through the text paragraph by paragraph, pausing for questions. If you have a question, please use the raised hand function in Zoom, or you can message me through the chat function and I will ask Tim directly. We'll try and close around the hour mark. And with that, I will hand over to Tim. Tim. There we go. There we go. Um, good evening, everyone. Thanks. I'm Tim Alcolic. Thanks, Alistair. They're starting us off. Um, so arrived at this point, we were squarely confronted with the question of faith. So just to recap where we are, we've decided that Susan is sober, that Susan is an alcoholic like us. Um, she took a set of steps. They rendered her permanently sober and enabled her to live. It's worked for thousands of people, millions of people like Susan. Uh, but there's no guarantee if I take these actions, will it work for me? Well, it's speculative. It's about the future, so it can't be known. Uh, you can speculate that it will work, but you can't be certain. And so faith is having essentially enough courage to take the actions with no guarantee of outcome. If you have a guaranteed outcome, you don't need faith. If, uh, uh, if the outcome isn't guaranteed, you need faith. Uh, part of the reason you need faith is the process requires an investment of time uh, and also an emotional investment and emotional risk. So uh, that's why I suppose the other reason why faith is necessary. And we can't get past this. We're going to have to take action uh, to test the hypothesis. That's why it can't be ducked. Some of us had already walked far over the bridge of reason toward the desired shore of faith. Uh, so this, just to recap again, um, the point here is that uh, everything I said about Susan as our example alcoholic uh, is a matter of observation and, and uh, uh, induction from, from the facts. Uh, that there's nothing wishy-washy about it. There's nothing fuzzy about it. It's just it's a simply observing the state of affairs, all these sober people who couldn't stay sober until they took certain actions. They took certain actions and now they're sober. And what's marvelous about this is, is we do have a control group and the control group is the poor souls who uh, test out the uh, half measures approach to AA. Um, and uh, I occasionally read the odd thing, and I read something a while ago, which, which 
To me, explain what is going on with slipping. Now, one of the tricky things in the book is there's half measures avail us nothing. It doesn't say when the nothing is availed. The difficulty is that half measures avail you a lot, except the lot, the a lot can be taken away and then you have nothing. So if you stay sober for five years on half measures, it looks like you've got five years in the back. Well, it hasn't yielded me nothing. It's yielded me five years. Well, except if you're then going to die of alcoholism, that's poor comfort to your family that they've now, oh, well, at least he had five good years is not something you'd want to say to someone whose who's relative has, has relapsed. Well, you had, he had a good run before he drank again, so let's be grateful, but you, you wouldn't have the gall to say that. So it avails us nothing, but not instantly. If the curse kicked in straight away, there wouldn't be any slippers in there. But the fact is, the curse, my, my friend Davinda, he's, I, I don't think he'll mind me saying this, he had a little, little bit of trouble with, with the not drinking bit of the programme for a while, as did I. And he discovered he was on a very short leash. He let up on his step nine for a couple of weeks and bang, he was, he was drunk. Um, other people can go for a very long time. Let's not name names. Uh, but some people can stay sober for a very long time. Yes, these people who show some improvement. Absolutely. So, so I'm sure you and I mean, I've certainly known people, I imagine you have who have been in AA for 20 years, um, who uh, will drink periodically and have a couple of weeks out and it's all very messy and unpleasant, but basically their lives are still a hell of a lot better than they were when they were drinking every day. So messy, but not as messy. That's certainly the case, but, but the point. So what, what sense are we to make of this proposition that half measures avail us nothing? If the curse sometimes kicks in straight away and the curse sometimes kicks in five years later, 10 years later, two weeks later, six months later, and it's all a bit random. Can we reasonably associate the slip with the half measures? And there are two sides to this is, first of all, the side of um, the people who exhibit full measures. I just don't see people who are practically devoted and sincerely surrendered in principle to the program they don't they don't wriggle or struggle they just get on with it they're not necessarily the most cheerful people you've ever met but they're 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 quietly enthusiastic about the program uh, but their actions are surrendered they just uh, in my sense they just don't drink there's always a sort of resist when people drink it, uh, on the rare occasions that people are very active in AA drink. There's always a resistance or there's often another addiction which is, is in the background, which is not being dealt with. Particularly those, as my sponsor points out, who are extremely orthodox and rigid in their presentation of the programme can be hiding uh, an addiction uh, which is... Uh, running rampage in some other quiet, compartmentalised area of their life that one of you is smiling to themselves at this. <laughs> um, the, okay, what's the point? The point is, okay, so, so, so first of all, um, 
the people that fully give themselves this, I just don't see them drink. The ones that don't give themselves this, as we've said, well, people are sort of picked off, uh, you know, over time. And there seems no rhyme nor reason. Now, what's the parallel in science? Science. Here's the science bit. Um, and, and Evan will correct me if I'm wrong. I, and I haven't prepared this. This is just what's occurred to me during the course of the meeting. I think it's radium. When radium, uh, which is a radioactive element, is decomposing, uh, so it lets out alpha particles. Um, so each atom of radium will let out an alpha particle and become polonium. It becomes literally a different element. Um, now, if you've got a lump of radium, well, first of all, if you've got a lump of radium, get rid of it because you'll, you'll die of radiation poisoning fairly rapidly. But if you, if you were to have a lump of, of, of radium, uh, uh, it will be associated with a half-life, which is um, how long it takes for half of it to radioactively decay, let out these alpha particles. Uh, and half-lives of radioactive chemicals are pretty reliable at the level of a lump of the radioactive substance. But, but here's the interesting thing, at the level of an individual um, atom of radium, uh, its decay is completely unpredictable. You can't say in relation to a particular atom when it's going to decay. It could decay now in one second's time, or it could decay in five years' time. Thorium. Thor, thor, is it radium decays into thorium or thorium decays into polonium? Anyway, radioactive element A decays into radioactive element B. That's the point. Okay. Now, what's interesting, you can predict radioactive decay very reliably at the level of a large body of the substance, but not at an individual level. At an individual atom level, it's, it's and here's the interesting thing scientifically, it is causeless. So the reason why a particular radioactive atom uh, decays is without, is without cause. And relapse, I think, is a bit like that. There's no evident cause. You can't, it doesn't make sense. Whatever circumstances you cite, you'll find a hundred people in AA who've had the same circumstances that day, who have an even worse program, who haven't relapsed. So it doesn't make sense. It's apparently without, at the level of the individual, it's without cause, but it's reliable at the level of a population of AA. Which is why, if you think back, if you've been in AA for a long time, you think back 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, how many of the people at your home group then are still alive and sober today? Quite a few, maybe. But certainly, if I think back to the people I know from 93, 94, that, 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 who are still sober, all of them uh, are very strong in the program, each in their own, each in their own way. So relapse is unpredictable at individual level and apparently causeless, but entirely predictable at the level of the population. And since you never know whether you're next in the queue for radioactive decay and relapse or whether you're way down, you, you have no way of knowing. You have no way of knowing whatsoever, which is why it's so dangerous. Anyway, the outlines in the promise of the new land had brought luster to tired eyes and fresh courage to flagging spirits. By the way, this new land, um, 
as I mentioned before, the two ways of doing AA are to use the steps to more effectively get your own way in the world. And secondly, to abandon the world, go to God and be sent back into the world to do a job. And it may look externally like you have a career, you have a house, you have a this, you have a that. You're on the PTA. Um, but that's not that that's the vehicle for what you're here for, which is to be there for the higher power. Um, thorium, radium, then polonium. Eventually we get to polonium. But thanks, Evan. Um, so we're looking for a qualitatively different type of life. It's not just old life buffed up. It's an entirely new life. And that's important to remember. If one tries to slip back into just being like other people, being satisfied with ordinary, uh, ordinary objectives, um, it becomes lackluster, uh, which brings us to this, you know, the promise of the new land had brought luster, good word, to tired eyes and fresh courage to flagging spirits. Friendly hands had stretched out in welcome. Um, uh, an acquaintance of mine uh, who's been very hostile to AA for a long time, they've had little bits of sobriety and they, they relapsed rather publicly. It was in the papers uh, because of a little contretemps with someone which, which got into the, well, I cannot say which newspaper because it would give it away. Um, but a friend of mine uh, held, <laughs> I said to a friend, you, you know her better than me. Why don't you contact her? And he said, oh, it's a very good idea, I will, because he hadn't known that she'd relapsed. And he texted back a couple of hours later saying, um, when uh, uh, when anyone anywhere reaches out the, the hand for help, I want the hand of AA to always be there for that I'm responsible. He said, unfortunately, in this case, the hand of AA got frostbite. So even if the hands that we stretch out in a friendly way towards people, uh, they're, they're not always welcomed. <laughs> Sometimes the hand gets slapped or bitten or or, uh, or something else, but one one holds out the friendly hand anyway. But we were great. So we were grateful that reason had brought us so far, but somehow we couldn't quite step ashore. Perhaps we had been leaning too heavily on reason that last mile, and did, did, and we did not like to lose our support. A lot of people get funny little blocks in step two, like. Um, They, 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 so the belief in a deterministic universe where all, we're all just basically chemistry sets and with an illusion of free will and all of that, which is a very depressing notion. Um, sometimes people get stuck on that and they can't conceive of a higher power because it seems, to, it seems to them to reside outside that. There comes a point where you have to stop talking. You have to stop arguing. You have to stop explaining. And instead, you start acting you have to take action and that's what i think this is about there's only so far you can get there's a roomy poem about uh it's conversation between a, a, someone who's in the world and a fetus and the person who's in the world is saying to the fetus it's lovely out here there are sort of butterflies and trifles and mackerel and mountains and all sorts of wonderful things and the fetus says you're completely delusional i have no experience of any of these things they can't possibly be true and so there's no way that you can explain to the fetus, you know, how interesting quantum mechanics is or the Eurovision Song Contest or French food. The fetus will not have a framework for understanding these things. So the fetus has to be born first and then gradually it will come to understand. It. 
See, and that's the idea. That was natural, but let us think a little more closely. Without knowing it, had we not been brought to where we stood by a certain kind of faith? Now, faith, for the purposes of this paragraph, can be defined as a commitment to a course of action, a commitment to a position or a course of action in the absence of full proof. There we go, commitment to a position or a course of action in the absence of full proof. Without knowing it, have we not been brought to where we stood by a certain kind of faith? For did we not have, did we not believe in our own reasoning? Did we not have confidence in our ability to think? What was that but a sort of faith? Yes, we'd been faithful, abjectly faithful to God of reason. So in one way or another, we discovered that faith had been involved all the time. If you've got one of your little atheist sponsees, they'll, they'll start twitching very badly at this paragraph. They will not like it at all, which is why I was at pains to present this definition. Uh, I had, when I was drinking, and certainly when, I've, when I'm in trouble today, every single time, I'm convinced that my assessment of the situation which is troubling me is so cast iron, is so true, that no possible, there's no, there isn't a possible other way of looking at things. I'll look at things in, in, the, in the news, and one of my, uh, I don't use it anymore because it's an abominable thing to say, but to, you know, to, to say about your, your political opponent, what are you? You're either stupid or you're, dis, you're, stupid or you're dishonest. Which is it? It has to be one of those two. There, there are many, as Bill says, very interestingly in, in, in Bill's story, when he's talking about the reasons why people um, uh, fail in finance, he says it was just ignorance of the markets, but he discovered many other reasons later on. And I think one of those other reasons is the most perfect structures of reason can be insufficient. If you read enough philosophy, for instance, you'll realize that very smart people have come up with very, very different ideas about how the universe is constructed and not all of the, some of the arguments are settled, but not all of them are by any means settled. So different ways of looking at things are certainly viable and one cannot have certainty in one's position at any particular point in space and time. And that's what I love about this. All I need is the ability to, when I'm upset to say, uh, I could be wrong. That's all I need. I could be wrong. My assessment may be wrong. We found, too, that we've been worshippers. What a, what a state of mental goose flesh that used to bring on. Had we not variously worshipped people, that's particularly pernicious in AA. Uh, always beware gratitude expressed by other people in AA towards you specifically. And when it comes you know there's trouble on its way, deflect it immediately onto the higher power. Because with the gratitude, with personal gratitude comes a set of expectations and you know you'll, you'll be knocked out at the knees within, <laughs> within anywhere from two days to six months. But I give it six months. Uh, if you deflect, it's fine. If you get people reliant on the higher power, on the light, on the fellowship, but beware um, someone, some sponsee literally uh, this many years ago brought me an apple an apple after or before before a meeting i mean is you know is this is this snow white or is there going to be a razor blade inside it i expect it to shrivel in my hand 
Um, in the sense it did, you know, a couple of days later, uh, we parted, we parted company. That's a very polite word for what happened a couple of days later. So, oh, I'm yes. Worshipping people in AA is the worst, absolute worst place to live. Business is business. Everyone is disposable. Um, sentiment, things, money and ourselves. Um, so this is the third column of the uh, resentment inventory. The thing, what, what was I after? People, sentiment, things, money and ourselves. There we go. That's a very, very good list. And then with a better motive. Had we not worshipfully beheld the sunset, the sea, or a flower, who of us had not loved something or somebody? How much did these feelings, these loves, these worships have to do with pure reason? Uh, little or nothing we saw at last. Were not these things the tissue out of which our lives were constructed? Did not these feelings, after all, determine the course of our existence? It was impossible to say we had no capacity for faith or love or worship in one form or another we've been living by faith and little else uh, and I think this is very important because uh, uh, you know if anyone ever asks you you know why you're married to the person you're married you can't answer because any answer you give is wholly inadequate and it's like that trying to present recovery to someone who's not yet recovered it's, it's simply impossible to describe. It is a, the, the reason, the thing that makes it worthwhile is a feeling, not a bunch of things. It's a feeling. And, and that is something which is not reducible um, to, I don't think it's reducible. This is questioned by some people. I, I think it's reducible to uh, chemical reactions and electrical signals in the brain. I think there's more going on. Um, Imagine life without faith. When nothing left but pure reason, it wouldn't be life. But we believed in life. Of course we did. We could prove life. We could not prove life in the sense you can prove a straight line is the shortest distance between two points. Yet there it was. Could we still say the whole thing was nothing but a mass of electrons created out of nothing, meaning nothing, whirling onto a destiny of nothingness? Uh, of course we couldn't. Now, the funny thing is, you will have sponsors saying, well, I can. I can believe that everything means nothing. <laughs> what do you have to say to that sponsor? So that is that is a thing that I, mean, I, I have a, a lot of sympathy with that. When I was ooh, four or five months sober, I was back staying at my parents' house in Dorset, as was. And I, I was feeling pretty down. So I thought, I know. I'll do what they told me to do at meetings. I'm going to read the big book and that's going to help. And I made the terrible mistake of reading this chapter. And I read that paragraph and said, well, that's precisely what I think that everything means nothing and is whirling on to a destiny of nothingness. That's the, precisely the problem with which I came to this. And you're telling me it's impossible um, uh, it's impossible to say that. Well, I am saying that. And of course, because he's saying there's, there's no, you know, no one thinks that. He has no answer. But the funny thing is, I, I had, I, I think the answer to that came many years later. When I was, I don't know, 21, 22 years sober, I was particularly down about some story I'd been telling myself persistently about a state of affairs in the world. 
So yeah, I wasn't upset by the state of affairs in the world. I was upset by a story I'd been persistently telling myself. No one else around me was bothered by this situation, at least not to the same extent as me, but I was bothered. And I was on the way to something thinking, everything's pointless, everything's, but I don't know why, why bother with anything? It's just an effort, isn't it? And through the world, it's all going to pot and you know, we're going to end up in a fascist dictatorship. And blah, blah, blah. My, my, one of my usual old refrains. I mean, you could set it to music, really, couldn't you? Um, but then I, I looked down, I realised my feet were continuing to take me to my destination. I did not have the courage of those convictions. And it's a very important thing, this. This is, and this is a, 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 such a curious thing. I, I, there's lots of suicide in my family. My brother committed suicide and, and well, most people have had a go at some point. Um, uh, and I was, I was very close. There was some sort of half-hearted um, attempts and, and, and playing with the attempts when I was a teenager. It's a very long time ago, and so everything's fine now. But but the point is, the the, the despair in inverted commas I had at four months sober, and these various other points of, of despair. If you'd said, if someone said to me, well, "Why don't you just end it then?" The answer was, "No, I'm not quite there yet. I'm not quite there yet. I did not have the courage of those convictions." And Funnily enough, when I've spoken to people who are very committed to the idea that the human, that human experience is entirely reducible, there is no such thing as mind. Uh, it's entire, it's a sort of the whole thing is a, an illusion created by the, the chemistry set and computer of our brain, carbon-based computer of our brain. You are you, you look at the person, you say, Well, are you actually committed to that? Do you believe that you love people? Yes, that makes no sense. You're not you're not really committed to it. You're sort of intellectually committed to it, but not not in your heart. And this is the curious thing about those arguments: is it's almost impossible to actually live that out. So one's forced to go with the opposite view, which is there is a meaning, but I can't see it. And as soon as you say there is a meaning, but I can't see it, there's hope. In other words, I might be wrong. And this is the Course in Miracles procedure. There's one bit of the Course in Miracles. There's only one bit where it tells you exactly what to do and how to live. And it's a section called Rules for Decision. Now, it won't make full sense unless you've read the rest of the blessed things. Unfortunately, you can't skip straight to Rules for Decision. You still have to do the donkey work like everyone else. But here's the idea. If you're very, very upset, you say to yourself, well, at least I can admit that I don't like how I'm feeling. Good. We can agree that I don't like how I'm feeling. Uh, now, uh, if we can, if, if we presuppose that how we feel is a function, not just of circumstances, but how we're looking at things, how we're assessing, things, that's a pretty easier uh, presumption to uh, adopt because you look at people who are in very similar circumstances who respond very very differently to those very similar circumstances so we can we can put it and there's lots of philosophical backup for this the fact that 
our experience as a function of, of, in, of, of stimulus and processing and our processing is our own. So we say, right, I don't like how I feel. Fine. So I hope I've been wrong. There we go. I don't like how I feel, so I hope I've been wrong. There might be a way, a different way to look at this. If, I, if, if it's possible I'm wrong, it, that entails it's possible there is a different way to look at something. To be wrong implies that there is a right out there somewhere. So now, where have we got to? I don't like how I feel. I hope I've been wrong. Maybe, uh, I, I hope there is a different way to look at this. Maybe there is a different way to look at this. What can I lose by asking? And I say that again. I don't like how I feel. I hope I've been wrong. I hope there is another way to look at this. Maybe there is another way to look at this. What can I lose by asking? And that's precisely what we're doing in step two. If, if you're at the point where everything is meaningless and pointless anyway, it would be in your best interests to be wrong and for other people to be right. And what can you lose by asking? Because as Louise Crooks would say uh, about sponsees, you might as well tell them the truth because they're going to die anyway. There you go. So if you're at, if you're at death's door, um, spiritually or, or, or literally with alcoholism, there is nothing to lose by giving it a go. Hence, we saw that reason isn't everything. Neither is reason, as most of us use it, entirely dependable, though it emanate from our best minds. What about people who proved that man could never fly? Um, and we've talked about this before, the nation of epistemic humility. Uh, again, uh, the more you learn about what clever people have thought over the centuries and the millennia, the less certain one can honestly be about one's own um, amateurish attempts to figure out the universe, you know, alone one's life. So the humility is necessary here. So you have to use reason because there's, there's, there's not a lot else you can have as, as a sort of uh, as the fence for your farm. Um, but it's not the be all and end all. There, is, there, are, there are other things going on and it's not entirely reliable at individual level. What's very interesting, if you read research, uh, you know, from the last sort of 20, 30 years in the areas of, of psychology and actually on economics as well, uh, how even highly educated people who are very um, sophisticated in their thinking are affected by all sorts of cognitive biases, of which they're not even aware. Um, and it's very interesting, all of that. Um, yeah, we have been seeing another kind of flight, a spiritual liberation from this world. People who rose above their problems. They said God made these things possible and we only smiled. We had seen spiritual release, but we like to tell ourselves it wasn't true. The catchphrases here are in the world, not of the world. A Course in Miracles would describe it as being raised above the battlefield. Um, the notion of the step three prayer is, is, is victory over the problems. It's transcending them. It, 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 it's, it, it's moving to, I can't use leveling up now because it's been poisoned by the 
well, a political party in the UK. I better not say which one, but we're not allowed to say that anywhere. It's, it's like um, a previous prime minister who shall remain nameless. For a lot of people, poison the St. Francis prayer because they the, used it in, in a speech. So, um, God, it, one day, one day, some politician is going to use the serenity prayer and it's going to become impossible to use it in the world of recovery. Mark my words. Okay, actually, we were fooling ourselves. Well, that's a motto for one's life, isn't it? For deep down in every, every man, woman and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or other it is there. For faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human life are facts as old as man himself. I have to say, some people get a very clear understanding of that in their experience, and other people never do. But um, the argument which always works with sponsees, uh, if you say the higher power is, behind, uh, is either the aggregate of the strength and wisdom available in the universe, or is the power which is ultimately behind that aggregate of of the strength and wisdom. Um, what matters is the strength and wisdom. And you say to the person, have you ever learnt anything from other people? Yes. Okay, good. So you've accessed wisdom, information, procedures, thoughts, ideas, values from outside of yourself, which proved helpful to you, which you couldn't have come up with yourself. Yes. So you couldn't have invented differential Calculus. No, good. Okay, so that's something you had to learn from the outside. Um, and then you say, have, have you ever received encouragement from other people? So have you ever been in a position where you feel hopeless um, or uh, lackluster or unable to go on and you were encouraged and you got the strength to do whatever it was? Yes. Well, you, you've gained access to a power greater than yourself. You're just, it just, the, 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 the means is ordinary and expected and human, but it's there. So the no audit is available from outside of ourselves. That's the thing which is hardwired. How one conceptualizes it, whether one conceptualizes it as God is, I, I don't think is, it is either here, here or there. Also, what's interesting about this, it's the idea from uh, that, that the, the access point to that power is actually deep down inside. It's it, it, even when the knowledge comes from outside, the encouragement comes from outside, we have to be in a receptive state. And that receptive state is deep within us. Uh, I'm sure you've, I, I mean, I've had the experience. A brave assertion, I made a brave assertion according to Seamus. I can't remember what that was. Um, um, was that about the serenity prayer, maybe? Okay. Um, I've been told the right thing for years, but not been able to hear it. And then something changes deep down within me, and I'm able to hear it. So there's a paradox there. Although the, this help, this encouragement, this wisdom comes from the outside, I have to be in a receptive state, and that's my business. And that point of receptivity is deep down within me. I've got to be still basically. 
uh, what's that line from uh, Psalms? Be still and know that I am God. I've got to be still to know that God is God. I've got to be still to be receptive to that informational encouragement. Uh, we finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Uh, sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found a great reality deep down within us. In the last analysis, it is only there, only there that he may be found. It was so with us. We can only clear the ground a bit. If our testimony helps sweep away prejudice, enables you to think honestly, encourages you to search diligently within yourself, then if you wish, you can join us Join us on the broad highway. I pre- incidentally, I'm sure I've said this before, I prefer the image of the broad highway to the, the, the path gets narrower, um, which always sounds miserable to me. I like the idea of a broad highway. And, Again, I've probably said this, but there's a famous character from the 1960s and 70s uh, who famously gave up alcohol. She was on Richard and Judy in 1992. And someone said to her, what do you do now you don't drink? And she said, everything. And that's why it's a broad highway. It's not a narrow path. A narrow path is drinking and taking drugs because that's narrow. (laughs) That's the boring bit. Now, there is a... One, it does have to sort of keep oneself within bounds. But again, same with character defects, whether it's jealousy or resentment. These are narrow. They're na- what we're giving up in giving up a character defect is a narrowness, a restriction. So although it looks like giving something up, we're giving up something which is restricting us and preventing us from fully living. So it's not really, it's not really a narrow road. Um, uh, with this attitude, you cannot fail. Um, the consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. In this book, you will read the experience of a man who thought he was an atheist. His story is so interesting that some of it should be told now. His change of heart was dramatic, convincing and moving. Our friend was a minister's son. He attended church school where he became rebellious at what he thought an overdose of religious education. For years thereafter, he was dogged by trouble and frustration, business failure, insanity, fatal illness, suicide. These calamities in his immediate family embittered and depressed him. Post-war disillusionment, ever more serious alcoholism, impending mental and physical collapse brought him to the point of self-destruction. One night, when confined in a hospital, he was approached by an alcoholic who had known his spiritual experience. Our friend's gorge rose as he bitterly cried out, if there is a God, he certainly hasn't done anything for me. But later, alone in his room, he asked himself this question, is it possible that all the religious people I have known are wrong? And I think this is an interesting point. One could, one could, easily, one could easily deploy the reverse argument is it possible the atheists I have known are wrong? It's not itself a terribly strong argument, I don't think, except for this. Um, certainly in my, just even my life, even before you get into the, the, the question of reading things and listening to things and finding out about people you've never even met. Um, the, the, I think that the point here is there are too many people who are smart and capable and successful and happy 
who believe in some sort of power greater than themselves as differently as they may construe it, that to dismiss it out of hand as childish folly is itself childish folly. I don't think it can be dismissed and there are certain things that can be dismissed very easily, let's not name them. But I don't think religion is one, I don't think atheism is one. Uh, because of the profundity and wisdom of people on both sides of the argument. And it's, as I say, it's just open, it's just, the question was enough for him. Um, he doesn't even get the answer. He ponders the answer. Uh, then like a thunderbolt, a great thought came, it crowded out all else. Who are you to say there is no God? And again, this is a wonderful statement of epistemic humility. Uh, you know, the universe is very, very big. I am very, very small. Am I really in a position to draw a conclusion about what is what may or may not be unseen behind the very universe? And of course, I'm not in a position to conclude absolutely on that. This man recounts that he tumbled out of bed to his knees. In a few seconds, he was overwhelmed by a conviction of the presence of God. It poured over and through him with the certainty and majesty of a great tide at flood. The barriers he had built through the years were swept away. He stood in the presence of infinite power and love. He had stepped from bridge to shore. Uh, for the first time, he lived in conscious companionship with his creator. This, by the way, it does match, as far as my reading and understanding is concerned, people's descriptions of psychedelic experiences, people's experience of near-death experience, uh, of, of near-death situations. Um, and uh, what, what there, is, there is a theory that some philosophers hold that in those situations, what happens is that, that the normal uh, uh, barriers between the individual consciousness and the universal consciousness come down and you become aware of a universal consciousness. Sometimes people have this very strongly in meetings. They feel at one with the meeting. They have it in concerts and they feel very much at one with the music. So even though one needn't have had it in this very, very dramatic form, um, uh, most people have experienced that, that sense of oneness with everyone where the individual disappears and is subsumed into the whole. I think it, it may, I mean, I'm not a football fan, but my football fan friends of whom I have none reliably report that this is how they feel at football matches as well. I got that turn of phrase from um, 1950s uh, Harvard mathematician, Tom Lehrer, that was it, I knew I'd get them. Um, Except in his case, it was disc jockeys, my disc jockey friends of whom I have none. Um, oh, there's one here tonight. Um, so where was I? What's the point? Oh, yes. So the, now the theory, the, one of the theories is these experiences, uh, near-death experiences, psychedelic experiences, um, they're accompanied oddly by a shutdown in many brain functions. And so the, the idea, uh, one theory behind this is that there are certain brain functions which are there to keep us 
consciously separate from others and separate from the universe, separate from the rest of consciousness. And this is under this 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 is under a theory whereby the ultimate, as they call it, ontological primitive, the thing which exists behind everything else is consciousness and what individual people are in their so the individual minds and beings, whether it's humans or cats or whatever, uh, are these separated, dissociated pieces of consciousness. And what happens when brain function gets shut down enough, the barriers between our consciousness and other people's consciousness fall and we're suddenly aware of everyone else. And this is exactly what happened when I completed my step nine, uh, when I completed it properly. Uh, I hadn't completed it properly the first time around. I'd done a solid job, but not a complete job. And I got a, an experience very much like this, uh, but it, and it came in step nine. Uh, what do you make of the statement? We're, we're all agnostic because we just don't uh, know. Well, I, this goes back to one of the definitions of agnosticism is the position that it is that whether or not God exists is unknowable so we're not even going to consider the question the question is beyond our um it, it's because it's beyond our ken we should just shut up about it and and this is i mean that's got a sort of long historical tradition um but uh so wittgenstein no no one ever expects wittgenstein to come into a <laughs> discussion about recovery so wittgenstein had two major um periods of work this is early well <laughs> unsurprisingly early Wittgenstein and late Wittgenstein and one one of his ideas I, uh, again Evan will correct me if I'm wrong on this but I think the idea in in the um, tractatus or one of the ideas there are many ideas in the tractatus one of them is that there are lots of things you can say very positive things about so the correlation between uh, and, and, items of language and states of affairs in the world. So there's a one-to-one -one correlation between the two. Uh, and everything outside of that, everything outside of what is objectively provable or, or can be objectively um, um, construed as part of this parallel of language here and the world there and how the two, one maps the other. Uh, on everything else, one should remain silent. And so, and, but, but it's the other things, it's the things that, which one can't talk about, which are the most important. So love and God and all of those things and beauty. Um, one should remain silent on them because one can't say anything which makes any sense about them. The, the domain of sense can't even go there. So let's not even try to use sense and reason and logic and philosophy to talk about things, talk about things which are beyond the um, uh, beyond beyond the domain of reason. I've explained that very badly, but you know, it's what comes of, of starting to talk about Wittgenstein when you haven't prepared to. Um, but to, to, to come back to your point, so that's that's one agnostic position is because God is so far beyond knowability. We should not even attend to the subject. Now, that's a reasonable position as long as you're not dying of alcoholism. If you're dying of alcoholism, I'm afraid it becomes rather an important question and not a question for two weeks time, a question for today. Am I going to get to bed 
today without a drink. So one's got to that. This is why it says earlier in the chapter that uh, it's it, it's you can't have soft and mushy thinking about this. You've got to come down firmly on one side. Either I'm going to muscle through, try and muscle through with my alcoholism to the rest of my life, uh, being the captain of my own ship, or I'm going to give this package deal a go. And you've got to do one or the other because the midpoint, uh, doing it piecemeal. Or, or um, I'll tell you, this is why doing it piecemeal doesn't work. I know lots of reasons, but this is one way of explaining why it doesn't work doing it piecemeal. Um, If you if you if you engage counsel to represent you, um, oh good, I was right about the tractatus. Okay, so that's where it is. Proposition seven: Whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. There we go. So anyway, if you engage counsel to represent you, and your so let's say it's defence counsel, and the counsel says, I can get you off that you're gonna need to keep your mouth shut during the trial, unless you're directly asked a question by me and I'm gonna say exactly what to say when I ask you questions and exactly what to say when the prosecuting barrister asks you questions. Do not ad lib or you're sunk. If you, if, if the court hears one peep out of you, you're going to go down for years because you'll ruin the whole structure of the defence erected by your defence counsel. And I think it's a bit like that with God. If you say to God, you can have everything, but I reserve the right to override your revealed will on such occasion as I see fit, precisely at the moment that I see fit, you're, 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 you're scuppering the whole endeavour because that will be the precise, the precise moment that you grab the steering wheel and say, right, now I'm in charge, is the precise moment that you should be handing over. Clancy tells a story about this. And I don't know how apocryphal this is. Our, our research assistant can check this out. Um, uh, Actually, this story comes from two sources. There's, there's a, a, I think it's a Chase Taub story about the Israeli Air Force during, uh, during one of the wars. But anyway, I'll, I'll do the Clancy version uh, about how they, with planes and tailspins, uh, when planes get into tailspins, for years, as soon as you got into a tailspin, it was going to crash. And if it crashed, you'd probably die. And they discovered that the way to get out of a tailspin was to do the opposite of what your intuition tells you to do. So joystick up, plane goes up. Joystick down, plane goes down. Now the plane is going down, so your instinct is to pull it up. But what you have to do is the opposite. If you're going down, you have to push the joystick down even further. And then you'll come out of the tailspin. But for years, and I'm I, given to understand it can still happen, that uh, people are unable to override their instincts of joystick up, up, joystick down, down. And in that moment of crisis, 
when they're in a tailspin, they cannot override their own instincts and just follow the instructions they were given in training. And I think this what is what happens when I'm in a when I'm in a bad way. This is why the ability to drop your defenses, to drop your weaponry and simply go to God and say, just give me the next right thing to do is so vital because it's at precisely those moments where one is at, at most risk of drinking, I think. Or of, of doing other unspeakable things. Um, so the, the, the point being is that it has to be absolute surrender which is why, to go back to your question, Dan, it's you, you can't uh, defer the question and you can't eliminate the question. You've got to deal with the question and you've got to come down on one side. There is no God I'm going to muscle through. Or on the other side, all in, no reservations. I don't like this one bit, but I will simply do one goddamn thing after another and hope for the best because I have no option. Um, this thus was our friend's cornerstone fixed in place. No later vicissitude, reversal of fortune. No later vicissitude had shaken it. His alcoholic problem was taken away that very night years ago. The problem is self-reliance. Once you know there's something you can rely on, I'm afraid, you know, your, your last excuse is gone. That very night years ago it disappeared. Save for a few brief moments of temptation, the thought of drink has never returned. Um, Bill, that means the thought of drinking did return. If you say save for a few brief moments of temptation. Uh, so it did return. But at such times, a great revulsion has risen up in him. Seemingly, he could not drink even if he would. Now, would means in that sense of, of rather archaic English, wanted to. And this is the idea about I don't have a it feels like I have a choice. I don't have a choice because a choice is uh, where I have before me two viable parts and drinking is not viable. If drinking appears to me to be viable, I'm already insane. If I have a choice, then uh, good luck. Um, God had restored his sanity. And that's the fe that's been the feeling. And funnily enough, at moments, at, at ex moments of extreme temptation, the one thing which has bothered me um, about the idea of relapsing or, or, you know, or worse is what it would do to the people around me. And I think this is why I didn't care about me in those moments. I do now, you know, don't worry. <laughs> I care about myself too much, probably. But in those moments, I didn't care about me. What I, but I did care about the people around me, which is why the relationships with other people I think are so important. If you have a genuine, if people are something more than delivery, disposable delivery devices for love and approval and approbation and respect and money and whatever else you want them for. As soon as you start to see them as real people, you can't, you can't drink because of what it would do to them. Uh, what is this but a miracle of healing? Yet its elements are simple. Circumstances made him willing to believe. Um, he humbly offered himself to his maker. People object to the idea of having a maker. But, well, if God and the universe didn't make you, who did? 
did you don't I didn't make myself certainly parents may have set the ball rolling but there's a little bit more to becoming a person than the act which set the ball rolling there's something else going on uh, realizing one isn't the prime, and this is the this is the course in miracles idea of the 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 at the heart of the course in miracles is this argument with God about one's own authorship. Did I make me, and is therefore my life, my pyramid, as testament to me, or am I made by something? Do I come from something? In which case, I have a completely different role in the world. Anyway, that's that's for that's for course in miracles. Um, even so, in other words, just like this, it's one of those another those grammatical archaisms. Even so, means just like this, in exactly this way, has God restored us to uh, all to our right minds, the right mind and the wrong mind. Um, when people slip, sometimes spontaneous will ghost you for a few days, and then come back. Uh, and it's just like they've been drinking, but they haven't. They've just been on a, you know, gallivanting psychologically. And they say sorry. And the reason it's, it, it, I realise why it bothers me. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll is not really in a position to apologise for what Mr. Hyde does on his rampages. It would be for Mr. Hyde to apologise for that. And if Mr. Hyde isn't dealt with, Dr. Jekyll's apology doesn't mean anything because Mr. Hyde is just going to come out next week. Which is why sorry is ooh dangerous word for our colleagues because there's a right mind and a wrong mind. We want the wrong mind to be disconnected from the mechanism completely. To this man, uh, the revelation was sudden. Some of us grow into it more slowly. Yeah, it took like 17 years, but anyway, whatever. I'm sure it'd be quicker for all of you. Um, some of us have, some of us grow into it more slowly, but he has come to all who have honestly sought him. When we drew near to him, he disclosed himself to, to us, and I have nothing to say about that. That's the end of the chapter, Alistair, so I'm going to shut my cake hole. Thank you very much, Tim. I will um, uh, just drop into the uh, chat now a link to all the recordings and the recordings from uh, the recording from tonight will be up there in the next couple of days. Um, and uh, with that, I will hand back to uh, Tim to close with the serenity prayer. I just wondered if you wouldn't mind hanging hanging on for a couple of minutes afterwards, just to explain that we're at this juncture we're sort of stopping but I'll, I'll hand back to you okay okay so would you please help me close with the serenity prayer god grant me the serenity, the serenity. to accept the things i cannot change, change. The, change. the courage to change the change i can and the wisdom the difference thank you tim thank you